Hello, and welcome to the Here and Now podcast. I'm Linda Dissel, Senior Equity Strategist at Federated Investors. And today I'm joined by Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist at Federated, and RJ Gallo, Senior Fixed Income Portfolio Manager. We are here to discuss market outlook headed into 2020. Let's turn now to you, Phil. We hear a lot about the impact of President Trump's tariffs in the media. But does Main Street care about tariffs? Does the stock market care about tariffs? And do tariffs really have the potential to end this now longest ever U.S. expansion? So, I mean, that's a great question, Linda. I think this is one of the most important and probably one of the most misunderstood aspects of the markets and the economy right now. And, and I'm going to take your use of the word tariffs as code for the, the China-U.S. trade negotiation. Our view, and, and this may not be a consensus view, is that Trump is, is utilizing these discussions as a means of narrowing our balance of trade deficit, which is running about $600 billion a year, costing the U.S. economy about three percentage points of growth. I think he is looking at the opportunity, specifically with China, to, to cut that trade deficit in half and boost GDP maybe by 100 basis points, one percentage point in, in, uh, in, in 2020. Um, we were rocky there in, in the month of May and, 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 and June. Uh, we think we've got those talks back on track based upon the results of the recent G20 summit meeting. And, and we'll see later in the year if we can get that trade deal consummated. It, no harm, no foul if we can get it done. Uh, all of what we've gone through this year is, is, is tolerable. But if this deal blows up and, and the tariffs become permanent and, and prices are higher uh, and, and GDP growth is diminished, that becomes a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah, I think um, the, the trade policy uncertainty that has largely been uh, wrought on the global economy by the Trump administration is, is tactical in nature. They're doing it for a reason. I don't question that at all. Um, personally, question whether or not they're going to get the results that they want. Uh, we've had a lot of starting and stopping in the China-U.S. trade negotiation. This most recent thing is just another chapter in the starting and the stopping. So it's hard for the bond market, I think, to get too excited. I mean, the 10-year Treasury is at the same level it was before the G20 meeting. So the bond market is not saying, ooh, there was something big that happened in Osaka. They say, okay, more of the same. They're going to keep talking. The keep talking uh, approach doesn't seem to be yielding enough results with respect to China. I do think it's interesting. Linda, in your question, you used the word tariffs. I mean, President Trump says, I'm a tariff man. That's a direct quote off of Twitter, of course. Uh, and he used tariffs in a very unorthodox way with respect to immigration policy in Mexico. Uh, he believes it's getting some results. Mexico, according to papers this morning, uh, has uh, brought out more forces to try to prevent Central American refugees from heading north without being encumbered. Um, I think when President Trump sees what he perceives as progress on key issues, as he uses tariffs as a weapon, we in the market have to at least be cautious about the fact that there'll be more wielding of those same tariffs in the future, whether it's with respect to China or somebody else on some other policy issue. That is partly what May was all about. The idea that you're going to use tariffs to get action on immigration policy was a pretty novel one. Right. And in your question, you asked about Main Street, care, Main Street caring about tariffs. Maybe not so much yet, but I think CFOs and CEOs, the C-suite, they care about tariffs. And there's a lot of concern that companies that are being asked to commit capital to foster further expansion, to keep this long expansion extending, 
there's a lot of concern that, that in the end, the uncertainty in the global trade system is going to depress investment first. It's, even though rates are low, interest rates may be low, but that's not the only thing people care about when they make investment decisions. If they have a lot of policy uncertainty with respect to trade and global growth, that could in and of itself be sand in the wheels of, of economic expansion. And, and right. we've, already, we've already started to see that. Some of the confidence yeah. metrics, consumer confidence metric, I would argue, mm -hmm. uh, a whole host of manufacturing metrics are, are slower today than they were six or 12 months ago, in my opinion, yeah. because of the uncertainty regarding well, China-U.S. trade. All the isms, all the... Well, and, yeah, yeah, and exactly. actually, very, very good points all, but RJ, beyond the tariff question, Market skeptics are pointing to other political risks that could threaten the financial market's confidence. The, for example, the, the other facets of the so-called U.S.-China trade war, Iran. Brexit, yeah. what's your view? I think that um, I don't disagree with Phil one bit that, that, that President Trump wants to shrink trade deficits. Um, he, he has a unique brand of politics, and I think he wants workers who voted for him to, to move forward and feel that the trade situation is going to help them. Uh, right now, they're taking some pain, but if it's for long-term gain, they might perceive it as being worth it. Um, I do think the U.S.-China situation, you're hearing academics, for example, say, suggest this is a new Cold War, that this is not an isolated trade con confrontation, mm -hmm. that President Trump's administration, led, for example, by the view of uh, one of his advisors, Navarro, uh, that they view China's ascendancy as a threat to the United States, and it's not... It's not solely about trade. And you're seeing that with the role of, uh, I'm terrible at pronouncing it, Huawei, their, their, uh, their tech company, mm -hmm. uh, the concerns about U.S. Uh, losing intellectual property via theft to China and that that becoming a national security issue. It, it, it goes beyond trade. So I think that that's something that, that we're going to be talking about for years to come. You know, the, the Brexit situation, you know, to me, Brexit is not the fear that it once was. Brexit was a, a fear in 2016 because the idea that a European Union member would vote to pull out of the Union opened the door to a European currency member doing the same, which would be a massive systemic risk. That hasn't happened. The voting within uh, Europe, mainland Europe, the participants in the currency, have not opened the door towards a withdrawal from the, from, from, from the EU or from the, from the Euro. That's all good, but it is an economic problem for Europe because Europe's already slow. The ECB's talking about more accommodation because they're just not growing fast enough. And so a hard Brexit, that's a big trading partner. That's just yet another problem, another headwind to European growth. That matters. And the Iran situation is a festering problem. It seems like both sides, Tehran and Washington, don't want a hot war, but it's certainly warming up. <laughs> and I, I don't think we'll end up in a shooting war with Iran, but ever since, the Trump administration pulled out of the 2015 nuclear accords. Uh, it opened the door to eventually this was going to heat up and become more complicated. Mm -hmm. And that's where it is today. Just in the papers today, Iran has now gone over its uh, uranium stockpiles. And that suggests that this is going to continue. This is not a, a one-act play. Yeah, wow, wow. So many political and geopolitical risks. But Phil, as we enter the second half of this year, and you think about where the S&P 500 should go and where at record highs now, do you think corporate earnings here in the U.S. will strengthen enough for the S&P to reach your year-end target? The, the short answer is yes, but, but it's not going to be a straight line. You look at the first quarter uh, of this year, expectations going into the quarter is that earnings were going to be down uh, 3 to 5%. We ended up being up 2.5%. 
Then the second quarter, which is going to start on July 16th, the expectation is that earnings are going to be down another 2 to 3 percent. We're thinking they're going to be up another 1 to 2 percent. Uh, similar story in the, uh, in, the, in the third quarter. So what's happening, I think, companies are being appropriately cautious because of the things we talked about. You know, what's going on in Europe, what's going on with China trade, what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, but uh, companies, uh, I think, at the end of the day, when the dust settles on the second quarter in the full year, uh, the earnings in the, for the S&P 500 are going to be up around $165, $170. Now, the key thing for us is going to be that, uh, and RJ touched upon this, interest rates and inflation are relatively benign. That we've got benchmark 10 sitting at 2%, give or take. Yeah. We've got core PC inflation sitting at 1.6%. Uh, we'd probably you know, go to church and light candles if we can get that up to 2% by the end of the year. So maybe you're talking about, let's call it 2% inflation trends and, and, mm -hmm. and treasury yields. In, in that kind of an environment, the, the appropriate price earnings ratio on stocks should be somewhere in the neighborhood of about 18, 18 and a half times earnings. In which case, if we can do 165, 170 in earnings, if inflation and interest rates stay benign, if we get that 18, 18 and a half multiple, we're looking at a 3100 year-end stock price in the S&P. So we're feeling really good. Now, that's not to say we're going to go straight there. We could absolutely, you know, see a little bit of an air pocket here over the summer months or the early fall based upon some of the things we've talked about, a misstep on China trade, uh, you know, does something happen in the Middle East? Uh, does the Fed disappoint us on July 31st? There's any number of things that could happen. Uh, so we think that, you know, even if we get a little bit of an air pocket here, that might represent a, uh, an opportunity to add if you're underinvested. And we do think we get to 3100 by the end of the year. Excellent. You, you know, RJ, in my travels, I often tell advisors, I work on the equity side. I, I think it's cool to be on the equity side. There's so much more fun than the curmudgeons over on the bond side. But having said that. Thank you. I always, <laughs> always remind myself, and I always remind people that, but the bond market is so good historically, though, at calling the economy. And so much has been written about the yield curve's historic record of calling mm -hmm. for recessions. So now, do you believe that the recent yield curve inversions that we've seen are signaling an upcoming recession? I think it's inevitable that this 10-year expansion will come to an end. I don't think the recession is this year, probably not next year. I think the yield curve inversion that gets most of the uh, academic modeling and the market focused tend, uh, outside of the bond market tends to be the three-month bill yield uh, relative to the 10-year Treasury, and that is still inverted right now. Um, that inversion, however, has been moderating. It's, be, it's, it's like negative 10 basis points. It was deeper, it was negative 22, 23. Uh, that, why is that? Because once the Fed opens up the door to easing, potentially in July, which is within three months, the three-month bill yield has started to go down, helping to correct the inversion. I'm looking on a screen right now. The two's tens year, positive 23. The two to 30 year treasury, positive 75. The five to 10 year, positive 23. So more market determined yield curves. The two year is a two year security. It looks beyond just three months. It's not inverted to the 10 year at all. In fact, it's a positive 20. So I think that the inversion that we're focusing on is part of what the Fed is seeing, part of why the Fed may be, as we mentioned at the start of this, be getting boxed in and may be forced into an ease, even if they're not that worried currently, because as they do so, 
that inversion will be rectified. So we've got a, a proprietary recession model uh, that we developed over on the equity side. Uh, Steve Chevron put the model together for us. And, and our model is concluding that uh, the U.S. economy was not in recession last year. Uh, we don't think we're in recession this year. We don't think we're going into recession next year. We, we are concerned at the earliest that we could be looking at a risk of recession in the first half of 2021. Now you look at the, the portion of the yield curve, and, and we like to look at the relationship between 10-year treasuries and the funds rate. And right now that's showing about a 50 basis point inversion. When, when, you, when you study the history of that and say, okay, what kind of a signal is that giving us? The answer is that it, it, it takes about 20 months on average uh, once we get an inversion of, of funds to tens before the economy goes into recession. Well, that inversion occurred last month in June. Add 20 months to that, and that gets us to the first half of 2021. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think they're both right. I think the inversion is telling us that a slowdown is coming. Our model is saying that slowdown is not going to happen until the first half of 21, and, and that's sort of where we think is, is, is the sweet spot. Excellent, excellent. And carrying on, though, RJ, following up on the message of the yield curve, why do Treasury yields remain so low, confounding so many market observers? It's probably a, a, a long answer to that. But in brief, uh, once the Fed tapered their bond purchases in 2013, there was, a, there was this fear that bond yields were going to revert back to 5%. Um, and at that time, I stood up in front of the, the, the sales force of the organization, my fellow investment colleagues, uh, Bill Ailing and I, I put together a presentation and said, you know what, it's highly unlikely that yields in the market are going to revert to what we think of as pre-crisis norms. Mm. Um, that we're in a, uh, the developed world, generally speaking, has a demographic situation that suggests that potential growth will be slower, um, in part because there's more retirees, in part because workforce participation is low. Uh, productivity, although it's been increasing lately, is still not as strong as it was decades ago. So a low growth, mature, somewhat older developed world suggests lower rates of potential growth here and abroad, lower rates of potential growth and relatively benign inflation due to global integration, trade and more flexible labor, labor markets should mean equilibrium, long-term interest rates. We'd be lucky if we got to four on the 10-year treasury. We got to three and a quarter and the stock market screamed bloody murder. Mm -hmm. if, if markets, the collective wisdom of crowds are sniffing out what are equilibrium interest rates? The signal they sent at that time was they are not four, mm -hmm. and they sure as heck aren't five. Uh, we're back at two, a striking turnabout. From a duration standpoint, we got to, to neutral for the first time in many years for, in terms of any extended period of time. We were neutral around Brexit, which worked out okay. But we got to neutral around 250 on the 10-year. Our view is we are in a lower trajectory of market yields likely for years to come that the relevant range might be four on the very high end, doesn't seem likely in the near term. Um, if we're getting a recession in the next couple of years, the chances of the Fed wanting to tighten anymore are low. And if anything, we've talked about it in, in this discussion that we think they're gonna ease. So lower yields are sort of the new normal, to borrow a phrase from one of our competitors in the industry. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If you look over longer term history, go back to the 50s and 60s, we had 10 year treasury yields with two handles all the time. Perhaps it, the aberrance was most vivid in the 70s when you had the guns and butter of the 60s, the heating up of inflation, uh, an irresponsible Fed that was beaten up by the Nixon White House that stayed too easy as inflation built. 
in, in essence, we had unusually high no nominal interest rates for much of the careers of the people who are in the industry now, especially those who are 50 and older. We remember that. And it's hard for us to shake that off. I think it's interesting talking to people who are younger in the industry. They seem less worried about the interest rate environment mm -hmm. because they came up in a time when yields have remained relatively low. And I think they're apt to remain in a lower range going forward. That doesn't mean they won't go up and down. That doesn't mean we won't have opportunities to tactically go long, short, or neutral to make a little bit of money on the bond side. But we're, I'm not fretting that 5 or 6% is, is in the offing anytime soon, and we're probably going to stay in the lower range that we're in now for a while. I think there's another aspect to this discussion. Everything that RJ just said was completely right. But I, I want to widen the purview of our discussion to looking internationally, specifically at, at Germany and Japan. If you're a global sovereign bond investor and you need a high-quality piece of paper, you really got three choices. You've got Germany, you've got Japan, you've got the United States. And right now there are significant economic concerns in Germany and Japan. Are those economies rolling over? Um, based of er everything that's going on in Europe, the whole Brexit discussion, uh, the transition with Mario Draghi, what the impact is on, on the German industrial complex. You've got German bunds right now that are yielding a negative 30 basis points, a record low rate. Now Japan, on their hand, is contemplating whether or not to increase their value-added tax for the third time. Uh, it, would, it would go from 8% to 10% at Halloween if they decide to do this. Uh, the last two times the Japanese increased the VAT tax, Japanese economy went into recession. So as a result, JGB yields are sitting in a negative 20 basis points. Again, sort of a record low. Again, in both instances, the markets are saying that there, there, there are risk points in both of those economies. So again, if you need to invest some money in a global sovereign 10-year treasury type instrument, Germany's negative 30 basis points, Japan's negative 20 basis points. All of that buying pressure is coming into the United States, which is forcing our treasury yield prices up and the yields down. We're now sitting at 2%. So while the economic discussion domestically that RJ just laid out is, is perfectly accurate, I think it's an underappreciated phenomenon that the competitive pressures for the negative yields in Germany and Japan are also forcing our yields lower, which is to say that if we can get Germany and Japan's economies back on track and those yields get back to neutral and then get back to positive, that theoretically should lift U.S. yields as well as, as all those yields are sort of working in concert. Well, you know, as we get close to the end of our time together here, I'm remembering that I'm an equity girl and we're just upbeat people. <laughs> and you know, one thing about Linda, Linda always needs a new pair of shoes. I need a new pair of shoes and when I go shopping, it really irks me when I am vying for the same pair of shoes with somebody else. Indeed, Phil, it seems that the consumer out there is perfectly willing to spend. Meanwhile, manufacturing numbers have disappointed this year. What do you make of this apparent disconnect? I, I think you've, you've accurately captured the disconnect, but I think it's, it's easily understandable. That you look at the consumer first, and, and the retail sales numbers in, in December and in February were terrible. There's no way for me to, you know, happy talk around that. But, but I think I understand why they were bad. You had a negative wealth effect in the fourth quarter with the market collapse. You had the uncertainty over trade. You had the government shutdown. Uh, and, and as a result, we ended up with, with terrible retail sales numbers. Now, as we studied that situation, we felt it was aberrant 
and we felt we would see a very strong snapback in, in the Easter season, what we refer to as Maypril, the combination of March-April retail sales. Okay. And guess what? We got a very strong snapback. May was also very strong. So I think the consumer is sort of back on track. Now, you're quite right. The manufacturing numbers have been terrible, and, and we touched upon that earlier. The isms are bad. Uh, durable goods have been a problem. Factory orders, inventory numbers, they're all suggesting you know, problems in manufacturing. And to some degree, I think that the uncertainty associated with what's going on with this China-U.S. trade discussions and, and Fed policy has, has, has put the manufacturing companies in a position that they don't really know, you know, what should we invest? What sort of CapEx investment should we make? Should we hire more people? Should we raise their wages? You know, should we do a, a, you know, a bond offering? I think there's just a tremendous amount of uncertainty that, in our view, will dissipate once we figure out exactly what the Fed's doing and where we are with this China-U.S. trade negotiation. So I'm not overly pessimistic that, that the manufacturing cycle is dead. I think right now it's, it's just sort of wounded and waiting and watching. And I think if we can get some, some, some closure on some of these key discussion points, we can see an improvement in manufacturing later this year or into 2020. I, I would agree with Phil. I, I think that the, the, the rolling over of the isms, the, you know, broadly speaking, in the developed world and also in the developing world, uh, it coincided with the uncertainty generated around trade policy led by the Trump administration. Um, I, I think the Trump administration has a, has a goal here where they're trying to tactically re remake the way that some companies do business. Uh, they're happy to see companies moving production out of China to, to Personally, it doesn't have to be back to the United States. I think they're happy to see it to go to other countries as well, because it goes back to what I was saying before. I think the Trump administration views the ascendancy of China as a threat, and they would like to find ways to slow down that ascendancy. One way to do that is get capital to move out of the country and go to other countries, ours or other uh, non-U.S. Uh, production centers. Um, it's, it doesn't come without a cost, however. If you're actually causing supply chains to be remapped and adjusted, it, we shouldn't be too shocked that the that the isms, uh, that the manufacturing momentum uh, erodes in the face of those types of changes and uncertainties that have arisen. Um, if we're successful at, uh, we as a country are successful at, at continuing, continuing this economic expansion, then it does seem quite likely that the dip in the, in the numbers will actually be just that, be a dip, and that the, ex the expansion will continue and manufacturing will get some, uh, some wind at its back again going forward. Thank you. So, Phil, any final thoughts? Yeah, thank you, Linda. You, you've done a great job moderating this, by the way. Uh, let me take sort of two steps back and look at a bigger picture. As we were having this discussion last Christmas, you know, the equity market was in a free fall and, and there was a lot of hand-wringing. Uh, and, and our view was that the market was dramatically oversold. We had terrible toxic sentiment, but the underlying fundamentals of the market were in pretty good shape. And we thought that stocks would enjoy a powerful rebound rally this year. We thought we'd be up 32% over the course of the year. And, and guess what? We're now sitting, we're up 26%. Stock market's at all-time record highs. But as I sit here right now, um, I think the market may be a little bit ahead of itself given the concerns that we've talked about today. What's going on with the Fed? What's going on with China-U.S. trade negotiations? What's going on with manufacturing? What's going on with those overseas issues? So I think there could be some chop to the market in, in what's typically a perilous time of the cycle, you know, the summer, the early fall. 
I think ultimately we will get through those issues. Corporate earnings will, will stay slightly positive, start to improve towards the end of the year. Inflation and interest rates will remain benign. So I think we're going to enjoy a nice end of year rally, and I think we'll get to our our 3100 level on the S&P by the end of the year. So I'm just a little cautious here over the summer months. There could be a little chop, but I think we, we end the year exactly where we want to be. Thank you. And you, RJ, any final thoughts? Um, I think that the key going forward will be whether or not uh, the, the, the politics and the policy uncertainties can be resolved in a way that are constructive for markets. Uh, I think the Trump administration has been going back a couple of years now since they got in place, uh, they've rewarded capital. Uh, cutting taxes increases the after-tax return to capital. Capital holders, i.e. the stock market, love that. It helps to, to propel the stock market higher. It makes all the sense in the world. The deficit, on the other hand, is, is, has not gone down. It's only gotten bigger. Um, can we find a policy equilibrium where we as a country, I believe we should still care about deficits? I find it frightening, theories like modern monetary theory, uh, uh, Dick Cheney saying, you know, 15, 20 years ago, deficits don't matter. I, I think that that is a very myopic view. Uh, they, they don't matter until they do, and when they do, you really regret that you've had a structural one for as long as we have. Mm -hmm. um, I think both parties, uh, we're heading into a presidential election cycle. I think both parties uh, uh, don't seem to talk about deficits. It doesn't seem to matter anymore. And I worry a little bit as an investor that we've lost some of our, our, our knitting. Fiscal discipline is so clearly out that that's a problem. I think as a country, we'd be better off if we found a balance between our federal resources, uh, private sector returns to capital, so that we could have a, a budget surplus again sometime. I know that sounds funny, but it was in the 90s that we actually had one. Uh, under Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich's collective leadership, we actually had a budget surplus. Um, and it unleashed a period of economic prosperity uh, that we, we could have yet again. We just don't seem to have the discipline anymore, and I worry as an investor that we're going to pay some of that price. The uncertainty at the federal level in terms of policy will become a problem in the long run. Well, thank you, Phil and RJ. Very interesting discussion today. And thank you to those of you who've listened in. We look forward to you joining us again. Views are as of July 2nd, 2019 and subject to change based on market conditions and other factors. This should not be construed as a recommendation for any specific security or sector. Federated Advisory Services Company.